Um, in the early days of Utah, there seemed to be this kind of Mormon speakeasy where the all-seeing eye was used as a, a way of marking certain buildings that, that could sell illicit materials. Um, and if you knew the right passwords and you knew where to look and you knew the building, then you could buy illicit materials. Brigham allowed that kind of thing to continue quietly so long as it happened quietly and in your own personal revelation. Uh, but I think he was the one that largely edited all of that out of, of major church ceremonies or ceremonies or ceremonies or ceremonies. Mormons are not typically um, into incense burning in their, their ceremonies. However, the, a lot of the early School of the Prophets stuff, um, there's some pretty vivid descriptions of them smoking and fumigating the room that they're in. And some people describe the, the fumigations as being um, noxious, which if you're used to tobacco smoke, you're not going to describe it as that, that. But that sounds something more like datura, which was used in smoking blends. Ceremonies, ceremonies, ceremonies. He went to one of their original sacrament ceremonies and offers one of the most explicit descriptions of laced sacramental wine because he's like, I'm a doctor. I know what they gave me. And he even says he went and tried and stole a bottle so he could take it home and prove that it was laced. Ceremonies, ceremonies. And the fact that everybody's just kind of glazed over this is astounding to me. Not only just because it connects to Mormonism, but because there were 17th century monks in Pennsylvania doing this much drugs. Wow. <laughs> and we don't know about it. Uh, the idea that the psychedelic renaissance happened in the 1960s is just like laughable to me. Like people have been using drugs forever. forever. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 754 Psychedelic Origins of Mormonism, an interview with author Cody Noconi, who wrote a book that you can buy if you want to, and you're going to hear all about it in a moment. But first, don't forget to go fill out the new survey on mindfulness. You can find it on the website under this episode. And there's also a place in that survey where you can sign up to come on the podcast and have a chat with me if you'd like. And then second, look, I know... I know I shouldn't do this, but I like reading through the reviews that listener give this podcast on iTunes. And there's a lot of them. There's, there's been a lot of them over the years. And most of them express some kind of appreciation for the time that it takes to create this podcast and the positive impact that it's had on their life, even if it's just made them smile on a day where they really needed to smile. And I know that negative reviews shouldn't bug me, but I can't help it. I just, this one just got under my skin. So let me share this with you. It's titled, Maybe 2.5 Stars. <laughs> Left on September 14th, 2021 by Minion Crushed. All right, Minion Crushed, if you're out there, this is for you, buddy. So Minion Crushed says, I used to really like listening to infants. They were a huge part of my faith journey. While I agree with a number of viewers that say that there's a lot of ego there and too many white men, they were funny and their perspectives frequently brought a lot to the table. The episodes with John Hamer are the best. Since the infants went their own ways and Glenn has pretty much been solo running the show, I've lost interest in it. The topics are frequently a little too close to the crystals will solve your problems crowd and not enough critical thinking. The old episodes are available on their website if anyone is interested. A number of the Smackdowns, where they read talks by LDS leaders and comment on them as they go, are excellent. Okay, Minion Crushed. 
crystals will solve your problems, crowd. Not enough critical thinking. Them's fighting words, buddy. Show me. Okay, show me my non-critical thinking. Please, I'm serious. Because if I'm really falling short here on my critical thinking skills, I really, truly want to know. So seriously, if you are out there, Minion Crushed, come forward and let's have a chat. Point it out. Show me. Because I, I suspect that what you really mean is that I explore things and sometimes even accept as valid things that stretched past your level of certainty, certainty that they are foolish or lame or unworthy of consideration at all, or whatever category or name or label that you want to slap on your non-evidence-based crystals will solve all your problem-shaped straw man that you just burned an effigy of me. Come on, man. <laughs> I mean, I talk about the mind. I talk about neural pathways. I talk about the way that fictions shape and forge our expectations of life. That, that's not critical thinking enough for you? I mean, come on. Anyway. Curiosity, man. Curiosity, exploration, imagination. These are not antithetical to critical thinking. They actually strengthen critical thinking. And for any of you fans of Ted Lasso out there, I want to put in a little plug here in favor of curiosity. You know, Rupert, guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. It used to really bother me. But then one day, I was driving my little boy to school and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman it was painted on the wall there it said be curious not judgmental I like that so I get back in my car and I'm driving to work and all of a sudden it hits me all them fellas that used to belittle me not a single one of them were curious you know they thought they had everything all figured out and so they judged everything and they judged everyone and I realized that they're underestimating me. Who I was had nothing to do with it. Because <laughs> if they were curious, they would ask questions. You know? Questions like, have you played a lot of darts, Ted? <laughs> Which I would have answered, yes, sir. Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 to I was 16 when he passed away. All right, so enough of that. I got that out of my system. Now, I encourage you once again to come and fill out the mindfulness survey. And now, hold on to your hats. Hang hold on, on to your hats. Your hats glasses, this here's the wildest ride in the wilderness. Which is right now. So, <laughs> welcome to Infants on Thrones, Cody. And let me ask you, do you consider yourself an, either an infant or on a throne in any in any way that either of those words could be thought of? Um, I've, a I've acted like an infant before. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely don't feel very, very much like I sit on a throne of any kind. Yeah. All right. So you're here because you wrote a book. Why don't you tell me a little bit about, like, what's the title of the book? Uh, the title is The Psychedelic History of Mormonism, Magic, and Drugs. It's a bit of a mouthful. So it's The Psychedelic History of Mormonism, Magic, and Drugs. Mm -hmm. All right. Do, do you focus just on Mormonism or you, you expand out or the, the, the magical and the drug history of, uh, or like what's your scope of the book? Um, it, so the first half of the book, um, understanding that a lot of Mormons don't, uh, <laughs> may not think that this is possible. Mm. Uh, the first half of the book is, is kind of establishing a case for the, a scientific approach to mysticism and how, uh, you know, people have handled that throughout history uh, before science was really even a thing. Um, so I go through kind of the scientific research that's been done on psychedelics and then bring uh, the kind of history of magic up to the present day and how it's interplayed with drugs and um, all of that. And then how that kind of uh, worldview was what Joseph Smith was born into. Yeah. How, how much of uh, D. Michael Quinn's, uh, what, what, what's the title? Uh, folk magic in the early Mormon worldview, something like that. Uh, magical worldview. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I cite heavily, heavily okay. from his book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what, what made you interested in writing a book like this, Cody? 
I was raised Mormon. It's kind of the black sheep of the family. Um, yeah. <laughs> read too much about it and all that. Um, I, I got into psychedelics because I was a lifelong migraine sufferer. Mm. Um, and through some kind of hedonistic experimentation, I discovered that LSD was the cure for my migraine affliction. Really? Um, and then doing some cursory research, I actually found out that LSD was discovered uh, as a as a cure for migraines. They were trying. That's why he was researching. Donald Hoffman was researching, try, trying to discover a, a cure for migraines. Right. That's how he stumbled. Yeah. Across it. Um, so so up until that point, uh, ergonomine alkaloids, were, uh, which is derived from ergot, a, a mm. psychedelic mushroom, uh, that was the the best treatment uh, for migraines up until like the 20th century. And he mm. was experimenting with some of the derivatives of that LSD 25 being one of them uh, as a cure for migraines and <laughs> discovered some uh, rather startling off label side effects. So what? Yes. Yeah, right. So, so what was the impact on you as far as relieving your migraine condition? Like how frequently and what dose? Like, how did you, how did you figure this out with LSD and how effective was it? Uh, it was, it was kind of by accident. Uh, I, I, I took LSD at a party when I was about 19, just for fun. Um, I'd heard about this and it was in the back of my head, but um, it was only afterwards that I had like the first, I think it was three or four month long period of migraine free anything. And I wasn't doing anything. And I'd gone through the gamut of all the pharmaceuticals they could throw at me and yeah. just nothing worked. Um, and I, I was used to having like, two, maybe three a month. Um, mm -hmm. And if they got bad enough, I could go completely blind and Oof. I could have seizures. Uh, they, they were really uh, pretty debilitating, but um, through some experimentation, you know, if I, if I took LSD once, maybe twice a year, I was just, I just didn't have migraines anymore. Really? Mm -hmm. and, and so you've been migraine free since then? Uh, not recently. I've, for a number of reasons i've kind of discontinued my <laughs> my regimen oh, okay um, so i've been getting them a little more often than normal but um yeah i i, I went through a, a good decade of just complete migraine free more or less so is this being uh, like i know john hopkins is doing their clinical studies on psilocybin and for for you know people with psd and that sort of thing are there studies is there research undergoing for lsd and as a way of treating migraines I think there's a current study going through uh, in terms of like uh, cluster headaches and migraines, but I, I don't know if it's finished yet. Mm. Um, I haven't kept up with that study. Yeah. Cool. All right. So you, you just kind of stumbled on to not only could it, could LSD be used as a fun party drug when you're 19 years old, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I've heard some horrible <laughs> stories about it too, <laughs> but um, that uh, it had this, effect of ridding you of your migraines and and then then what was your experience from there with psychedelics what else did you get from it um i get well definitely being raised mormon i'd never i'd, I'd never experienced a religious uh <laughs> experience i'd just seen it um mm. this was the first time and again quite by accident that i i felt like i had experienced god mm. or like I had experienced that kind of religious fervor that I'd seen growing up. Um, yeah. And it was the first thing that really just like turned it on for me. But that was um, just the, the drugs, right? Cody, like, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a whole nother side conversation. <laughs> yeah. But, but isn't that the, the response you get a lot? Like when people like, Oh yeah, you had a religious conversation. Oh, you were on drugs. Oh, okay. yes. Well, yes. then that's really, it doesn't count then. It's easy to reduce it down to just, you know, you were just on drugs. Yeah. Um, and I honestly, with the book, I try and take a stance of, you know, playing middle ground where it's just like the drugs are another crazy thing in this already crazy thing. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make or break anybody, frankly. It just is another thing that is in there. Yeah. What um, do you mean? What do you mean when you say it doesn't make or break anything? Um, I don't think it makes Joseph Smith holy or unholy. I think he uh, already had established that. I don't think it... Um, means anything in terms of him being able to um get people to have visions or to have religious experiences you know like the mm -hmm. tool doesn't really matter so much as the fact that he could do it regularly and like mm -hmm. on cue sometimes yeah um that's the important bit you know so i i try and <laughs> i try not to make way too much uh on the the drug use because so of that you know so tell tell me your view of joseph smith like who who was this guy in your, in your eyes? 
Um, <laughs> I think he was a, a very, very intelligent, if not traditionally educated, uh, occultist and was made a flip uh, in his late teens, early 20s to religion. And um, I don't think he was the most righteous of people. Um, <laughs> I think he was what I think pious fraud. Uh, are you familiar yeah. with the term? Uh -huh. I'm, 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 I'm the biggest fan of using that to uh, label him. He okay. at times seems to believe the things he was, he, he was saying, but I don't think that it necessarily meant he couldn't con the people he was uh, around. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence that he did so regularly. Yeah. So you, the, the reason I asked that question is because you said something that kind of piqued my curiosity when you were saying the drugs didn't make or break him, that he was able to turn it on or off, whether he was experiencing it through psychedelics or not. What, what, is, the, what is it that he was turning on or off? Um, what do you think that um, was? Just his, his, his ability to, to enchant all the people around him. I think he was a pretty charismatic individual. Um, mm -hmm. And when talking about these things, I think it's important to designate between um, pe people who are gifted at inducing religious experiences in themselves on cue, which mm -hmm. is something a lot of people, it's like a skill you can develop. Um, being able to elicit those experiences in other people, though, is is another matter entirely. Um, and he seems to have been able to like uh, get a lot of religious fervor in people, but when he needed to uh, uh, induce visions, he seems to have precluded those with sacraments and anointing ceremonies, which okay. are pretty suspicious to me. Yeah, right. So what what is that, um, get, getting into that religious state? Uh, um, he was very into magnetism, which was like a, an early precursor to hypnotism. Um, there's a lot of like mentalist techniques that you can use to uh, sort of get a group of people into the same mindset um, and a very suggestible mindset, I would say. Yeah. So, so you said magnetism, which was like an early form of hypnotism, and mm -hmm. then he'd use that as a way either for himself to have his own personal visions or to be able to get a group into that kind of frenetic religious open to something state mm -hmm. yeah and i guess when i said uh, make or break i meant more as like a his character uh, mm. it doesn't really the, the drugs in my opinion have less to do with him uh, being a good person than a whole yeah. laundry list of other things of other things yeah yeah w when did you first begin to think that there was a connection between the origins of the mormon church and psychedelics um, I, I think one of my early psychedelic trips, I'd had the thought and I just threw it away. Cause I was like, that, that's ridiculous. There's no, there's no yeah. way. Um, and then I'd read Michael Quinn's book and I was very, there's a few scenes in there that I was like, I don't know if Michael Quinn knows about drugs. <laughs> hmm. Um, and then I, I read Robert Beckstead's paper, uh, the, the 2008 Sunstone, um, can't remember the exact name of it, uh, but it's the first paper written on the topic. Um, and I thought he was, it was very intriguing. I disagreed with him vehemently on like almost every every really? particular um, at first, but then I, I, uh, I started digging and I, I like, he's a lot of his sources are totally credible. And he was, mm. I think uh, jumping to conclusions in that first paper, but I mean, he, his head was in the right place. And that was one of the first people to do that. Yeah. Um, and then I and then I stumbled on to uh, Peter Lamar's book, The Hearts Made Glad, which covers the intemperance of Joseph Smith in the early church. And again, I found a bunch of like, oh, my God, Peter, uh, he's describing drugs, but he doesn't he doesn't realize what he's describing mm. um, because wine doesn't do this. Uh, yeah. Um, and I just down the rabbit hole. I went. <laughs> OK, so so and, and then at some point you decided you wanted to write a book about it. How, yeah, how long? I, I, yeah. Tell me about that. I, I just started collecting information uh, because I it's from so many different sources. I just I finally realized like somebody's got to write a book about this. Yeah. Um, and then I, I hooked up with Bryce Blankenagel of Naked Mormonism podcast. Yeah. We did uh, a lot of research together for a couple of years. And then we 
presented that at Sunstone and it's just kind of slowly evolved from there. I kept working on it through COVID and finally got it all together. How, how long ago was that Sunstone presentation with Bryce? That was 2017. Okay. Cause I, I think, cause I had him and Micah Nicolaisen on infants on thrones shortly after that. I think it was 2017. So you were the co-presenter with him. Yeah. Should have invited you on back then, Cody. What, what happened? <laughs> I think I I was uh I don't know I was all over the place back then. I, okay, <laughs> I think I came up and introduced myself, but uh, I was very shy, and uh, Sunstone was very intense for me. Oh, you <laughs> you inter- you introduced yourself it. to me at, at Sunstone. Did we meet? I and think I we remember. met very briefly. I, wow. I think I was, uh, I think Bryce and I walked up to your guys' table and okay. I, like we handed some papers and shook hands. And then I was, I was ah, I'm and like, go. do you want to buy a shirt? Do you want to buy a mug? <laughs> <Something> <laughs> like um, yeah. And that's, uh, I think uh, that's where I, I discovered your guys' podcast. That was oh, okay. I hadn't heard of you up until that point. And then Bryce, yeah, was like, yeah you guys should check them out. Yeah. Well, Bryce, I mean, Bryce is so good at what he does. Uh, so thorough as a researcher. <laughs> I was, yeah. I was so impressed with how patient he was uh, at engaging with people. I, I am yeah. incapable of the Mormon whisper uh, <laughs> mentality. <laughs> yeah. All right. I get so frustrated and I just, I can't. Yeah. Okay. So what, so I'd like to know, I, and, and by the way, I, you may already know this, but, but I tend to lean towards, the, the thesis of your book. I mean, I, I, I think that Joseph Smith was involved um, and, and Bryce was a huge influence on me to kind of convince me and things that Micah had researched, but it just kind of makes sense to me. Like, especially when I look at the Pentecostal outpouring of the dedication of the Kirtland temple, I mean, the descriptions from that alone, but, but even I, I suspect that in, in Joseph's youth, when he was involved with Lumen Walters and Sally and Willard Chase and, you know, taking people on these late night treasure hunt excursions, I think some of those were probably fueled by psychedelics. And it was almost like that was part of the appeal of getting these people to come out into the woods with them and mm-hmm. have this drink. And But I, I, I've never had any kind of like evidence or it's just something that seems seems very plausible to mm-hmm. me. So I'm really interested to hear you talk about what you found and what some of the compelling evidence is that brought you to the dark side, I guess. Of, <laughs> well, you uh, even like circumstantially, you, you do kind of see this evolution of Smith where like as a kid, he's he's working in small groups. Um, if he can get someone to see anything, it's one other person and it's privately. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the three I actually think the the three witnesses the eight witnesses and then the first Cong- the first meetings of the church are where we see that evolution really take place because you see him do it with a small group of people he induces visions on in on cue then he does it in eight people in smaller groups but he, he keeps the the like oh i can do this and then those first few meetings of the church we see like those pentecostal outpourings that yeah you know, all happened conveniently about an hour after the sacrament was, was uh, administered. Oh, really? So like these are, I, I know it's all, we're, we're probably never going to find that smoking gun that like Joseph's secret drug book, but like, yeah, <laughs> if we look around and just like know how drugs work, it's pretty, it's pretty so, clear. So he was I hadn't something. heard that before. So, so like a, a, an hour after they take the sacrament is when visions start occurring that and that happened with the three witnesses and the eight witnesses as as well that there was some kind of a sacrament that they did ahead of time before well um so we kind of have to work backwards and forwards so like the the three and eight witnesses they never explicitly mentioned taking a sacrament Mm -hmm. however it's not always mentioned because not everyone thought it was worth mentioning um um but then we'll get like um, during the the school of the prophets, they'll mention this the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. which is a thing that existed hundreds of years prior, um, and they were likely still doing this at the time of the eight witnesses and the three witnesses. They just didn't care to mention it because they were like, "Yeah, we took a sacrament; it's not a big deal." Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the eight and three witnesses personal testimonies where they're like this whole thing was in vision we did not actually physically hold anything this was yeah. a giant vision perpetrated by joseph a guided meditation kind of, of sorts place. yes a yeah. guided journey yeah <laughs> and uh 
I, and again, if you look at all those first early meetings, he, he administers the sacrament. They say a prayer, they sing some hymns, they spend about an hour doing church stuff mm -hmm. and then it turns on. Yeah. And so what do you think he used? Um, so this is mostly what I disagreed with when I first read Beckstead's paper, because his, mm -hmm. his whole thing was very um, Amanita Muscaria centric and Datura, which both of them are problematic for inducing reliable visions. I had thought um, Amanita is kind of a tricky one to get um, into a wine and to be reliably visionary. Um, I thought the same. Is, was is, is that a mushroom? That's a psilocybin? The yes, it's the it's the uh, the red and white fairy um, okay fairy tale mushrooms that everyone like, think like, of when you think of a psychedelic mushroom the the white dots on the red cap yep okay. yeah that's an amanita um, they are not the most visionary mushroom they're just kind of mm -hmm. like the most iconic mm -hmm. um, and so I I was like oh he's he's being too amanita centric there's a bunch of other munch mushrooms he could be using there's also a bunch of other plants he could be using yeah um, and datura is too dangerous I thought. But having it, done more research, it's it's actually you can you can make it pretty safe uh, wine laced with Datura uh, mm -hmm. vehicle. So I, I think that was the one that Bryce talked to me about, that there were parallels between like like Datura is like a little black seed. Right. But there's like a white blossom or a white fruit around it. Am I thinking of the right thing? Sort of. Um, I'm sorry about the alerts. Um <laughs> Yes, uh, it so it's in a, a kind of burr-like seed pod. Mm. Uh, it looks a bit like a chestnut burr with, with spikes on it, and then when it opens up, uh, it, it has this like pillowy white cottony inside. Mm. And in the the cotton, you can kind of pick out these black seeds. Mm. Um, and uh, coincidentally, if you look at the the first vision uh, sequence or the um, the tree of life sequence um, that was originally dreamed by Joseph Smith senior um, recorded by Lucy Mack in her biography. It, he, he pretty, the way he describes the tree of life, it sounds like a, a very uh, taxonomically accurate description of Datura. Uh, hmm. And that's probably what Bryce was, was talking. I think that, that, that's what's kind of jogging my memory there. Yeah. So, so, so you said that you initially disagreed with those two substances, but then later you researched and, and thought that's plausible or have you, have you found other possibilities that you think it might've been? Uh, a lot of other possibilities. I, I, and so the, the second chapter of my book is just kind of an ethnobotanical profile of all of the uh, all of the things they could have been using, uh, coupled with all of the v different delivery methods they could have been using. So mm -hmm. Um, a lot of these things can be used in sacramental wines. Um, they can also be used in anointing oils to great effect. So when they introduce the anointing ceremonies, that that's a whole nother cat of uh, bag of worms. Um, and there's, well, what was the other one? Oh, uh, fumigations. Uh, um, Mormons are not typically um, into incense burning in their their ceremonies however the a lot of the early school of the prophet stuff um there's some pretty vivid descriptions of them smoking and fumigating the room that they're in mm. and some people describe the the fumigations as being um, noxious which if you're used to tobacco smoke you're not going to describe it as that that but that sounds something more like datura which was used in smoking blends mm. um so datura could have been used in a couple different uh ways okay so what would be the advantage of Joseph using psychedelics? Like you talked about him being able to in induce a vision, his own vision, or to lead, you know, a one-on-one -on -one with somebody else, or maybe large groups in visions. What, what are some of the reasons why he would use this, or it would have some kind of an effect that it, that it did? Uh, I think the biggest is statistical reliability. Um, getting somebody or getting people to see the same thing you're trying to get them to see uh, using just mesmerism and, and kind of those hypnotic techniques is rather difficult and not very reliable. Mm. If you introduce a uh, entheogen or a, an exogenous catalyst, like, like drugs, all of a sudden that becomes very easy to do. Um, and I like the first, first chapter I cover just really reiterates how uh, reliably uh, how reliable you can replicate these experiences by using drugs. Mm -hmm. um, 
on top of that, that kind of magical worldview, he wouldn't have seen this as anything different than using uh, his Jupiter talisman or mm -hmm. any of the other things he, he used his entire life. Like the seer stone that he probably translated the entire Book of Mormon with mm -hmm. would have been no less occult than um, using a magic potion. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, what, what, what are the most common occurrences that he would use it? You mentioned the School of the Prophets. We, we talked about the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. Like, what are some other notable times that really jumped out to you that made you go, oh, this, this looks like there were psychedelics involved? Um, honestly, the, the biggest ones that pop up to me are when Joseph is not on the scene. Mm. <laughs> um, those early days in Kirtland, especially when him and Rigdon are running around doing missionary work, um, the Mormons in, in Kirtland were kind of left to their own devices. Um, there was one character in particular, Isaac Morley, where they were um, his like, who I think introduced a lot of the polygamy in Mormonism. Mm -hmm. um, he had kind of a communal uh, big family, he called it. And there was a bunch of log houses where they would hold all of their original sacrament meetings. Um, and it's in those original sacrament meetings when Joseph's not there, where we see the most explicit descriptions of psychedelics being used in the sacrament ceremony, such that we even have a local school teacher, JJ Moss from Kirtland, who was there when they, when the Mormons first arrived he, uh, and they didn't know he was trained as a medical surgeon. He was practicing as a school teacher because he had a leg injury, which kept him from practicing medicine at the time because he had to walk everywhere. Um, so he went to one of their original sacrament ceremonies and offers one of the most explicit descriptions of laced sacramental wine because he's like, I'm a doctor. I know what they gave me. And this is not. And, and he even says he went and tried and stole a bottle so he could take it home and prove that it was laced. Um, and this all happened when Joseph wasn't there. And because of things like this happening in those early years, uh, you see this uh, evolution where Joseph will show up, kind of, kind of put the, uh, the cap on things, and then he'll go away again, it'll get wild. And then slowly over 10 years, it goes completely underground. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the first year or two, they were doing it openly. And if, if you wanted to sit in on a ceremony and watch that guy trip out, you could. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> sorry, my, I tend to rant. I, no, I, I like the rambling. So tell me, um, with Joseph Smith not being there, I, I thought you were going to go the opposite direction. I thought you were going to say when Joseph was around, people would have these experiences. When he wasn't, they wouldn't. So it would indicate that there's something about him or the way that he did it that, uh, you know, like you could tie it to the psychedelic. But I'm interested. It was the, it was the opposite of that. When he's gone there's the more explicit cases of it than when he's away so how, how much like with jacob morley being like a primary influence of uh, polygamy do, do you think that there were influences of psychedelics outside of joseph smith or was he the primary influencer that then other people would do it and to kind of take liberties when he was gone i i kind of think it was a if you were in on the secret there was kind of this sharing of information mm -hmm. um, that was going on because um, and I go into it later, but in the Nauvoo years, John C. Bennett, uh, who there's some evidence was maybe Joseph's personal abortion doctor right. was offering psychedelics as well. Uh, and he, basically anybody who was medically trained at that time and had an interest in the occult, not only had the, the know-how, but the means to produce these things in mass, um, mm. with like, the, I mean, they didn't have a laboratory, but they had with like a pretty basic kitchen chemi uh, chemistry set and uh, some small chemical uh, <laughs> apparatus, you could produce a lot of drugs. Yeah. Um, what, what's, what's the John C. Bennett connection to psychedelics? Um, he is quoted. So there's a, I have my, I'd have to flip through my book. He uh, um, is quoted as saying, um, essentially, I can hide these polygamous unions. If you need me to, I could even kill your husband. Um, and from a, an occult perspective, a lot of these, these potions were used in one, two, three combinations. So like one dose would give you a, a purgative uh, or, or like a one dose would give you a vision. Uh, two doses would give you like a purge or it would act like an abortive. Um, and then three doses would be death. So like, uh, 
when he says things like that, he may be referring to the same potion by saying like, I can do all three things with this one thing. And if you need me to do any of them, I can, mm. and I can do it reliably. Um, him saying those kind of things is, is really suspect, especially. So that's, that's the, typically the way that, that that's typically the way that people would talk about psychedelics back then with that one, two, three, like what one will give you a vision, two will give you a purgative experience, three will kill you. And so in terms of to, potions, yes, in terms of potions. So for him to, to invoke that formula indicates that it might have been one yes, of the psychedelic and that he, potions. And that he knew, he knew what he was talking about. Yeah. I've, I've read, like I, same, I did a, it all being the same thing. Um, it's a little, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. You're, you're, there's a little bit of a lag. Oh, uh, it's a little different with like, with uh, ointments and such. So like, you don't quite get those effects with the, mm -hmm. with the anointing ceremonies, but okay. in terms of like sacramental or like a, a distilled liquor that has uh, plants suspended, uh, 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 laced with plants or whatever, then that's yeah. what that would do. Ergot's one of the big ones that does that. Yeah. All right. I'm going to play devil's advocate and push back against this John C. Bennett. Claim this is what I was hoping for. Good. <laughs> Be because I, I did read, what was that book that he wrote? It was like Mormonism unveiled or it was, it was one of these big exposés mm -hmm. that John C. Bennett wrote. And I, I read that for early Mormon audio, which was a, podcast project that I attempted many years ago, then that was fascinating reading, reading his take, but he was such an unreliable narrator to me. Like it, it seemed like any place there was a, any opportunity to make himself look good and to make Joseph Smith look bad. He just took it and he inflated it. And it, I, I it, it amused me kind of the way that he postured. Mm -hmm. He brought in all kinds of things to, to besmirch Joseph Smith's character, but I don't remember anything about psychedelics or, or drugs. And it would seem to me that if that was going on, that would have been one of the first things he would have wanted to shine the light of exposure onto. So why would that not be in his work if he was doing that? What, what are your thoughts on that, Cody? I would immediately say it, it's for the same reason you don't rat like if you're a drug dealer and you have a, a an opposing drug dealer, you don't rat them out because yeah. that shines too much light on you. Like I, I, I don't know about that necessarily in terms of. Uh, I think he was producing a lot of his own drugs and doing a lot of his own nefarious nonsense to shine too much light onto that particular subject when he yeah. had so much ammunition to spend elsewhere. Yeah. Okay. All right. And if and you know it, that is a valid point. Um, I definitely don't hang my hat on the John C. Bennett thing. It's sure. just an interesting, like in terms of the evolution of this and like who was using it and kind of this sharing of information. Um, I do think he was involved in that. Yeah. All right. Tell me some, tell me some of these other stories. I like hearing, I, I like hearing what you've researched and what you discovered and like what really excited you about. Um, <laughs> uh, the thing I, so there's, there's a few spots in like Mormon history that have been combed through by other Mormon historians that I just like, I can't believe I'm the one that's just like, nobody saw drugs in this. No, you, mm. you all read this and nobody saw drugs. Um, and one of those is, is Afrata, uh, the, the commune of, at Afrata that was just a few miles outside of the, the Whitmer uh, farmstead. Okay. Um, this was an occult group that was practicing. Uh, they called themselves the Brotherhood of Zion. They were practicing a lot of um, these like proto-Mormon ceremonies, including baptism for the dead. They built their own temples, they, which look like original Mormon temples. They were super into the end of days and all the, all the Mormon stuff that we're, we're told is uniquely Mormon was being practiced a hundred years earlier by these German mystics. Um, and most notable, like and Mormon historians have talked about this since I like, uh, I think I think uh, Barnes talks about this even, but like it's it's been noted for a long time that there's this weird connection between the Whitmer family who lived just four miles outside of the Safrata commune and all the all the weird German mysticism they were practicing. But nobody talks about the drugs. And these people were 
explicitly openly using drugs <laughs> in their in their temple ceremonies mm. um such where the initiates went through this classic uh shamanic dissolution where you like you lose your teeth and your eyes and your hair and you you gain a resurrected body with magic stones placed inside it again very mm. <laughs> very mormon themes um and the fact that everybody's just kind of glazed over this is astounding to me it's like i i kind of want to write a book about Ephrata after this because not only just because it connects to mormonism but because there were 17th century monks in pennsylvania doing this much drugs wow. <laughs> and we don't know about it uh the idea that the psychedelic renaissance happened in the 1960s is just like laughable to me like people have been using drugs forever oh yeah and i'm sure you're familiar with the immortality key you you know all about mm -hmm. that, that oh, well and that was why fantastic. they were doing that's why they were doing drugs at Afrata was was to achieve this weird uh, immortality. Yeah, that is very Mormon. And 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 you could potentially, I would I would be curious to see if the uh, Afrata had they were preserving a much older tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, by that. their own admission, they 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 claim to. Um, yeah. And what's even more curious is that you'll you'll have these weird connections. So like they the ceremony that they are practicing in Afrata in the 1700s is also being practiced in in uh, Europe separately, almost unconnected um, by Count Cagliostro and his Egyptian rite uh, with the Masonic Brotherhood. Mm. So even like cross across continents and across religious boundaries and across all like there is still this kind of weird sharing of information in in, in terms of drug culture and like how to induce vision yeah is is there any uh, like direct influence between the Ephrata and the mormons uh, aside from the whitmers living four miles from their compound uh were there other notable like Ephrata members that converted to mormonism earlier and had influence over joseph smith or people like that i have not heard anything i actually i speculate that perhaps the original sightings of Moroni um, by the Whitmers, um, being that Moroni was spotted by a couple of the Whitmers and was described as a blonde Anglin um, German looking person, mm. <laughs> says to me that, you know, it was, and that was right within their proselyt proselytization territory. It says mm. to me that Joseph probably knew one of these monks or maybe David did and they all knew each other or something. Mm. And he was helping them with, the bringing forth of this book or whatever mm. it is. Um, I don't have any evidence of that. That's just wild speculation on my part, but yeah, um, I do see some connections that I, I would like to investigate further. Yeah. What, what are some of the other stories that really excite you? Like the, that Afrata one was cool. I'm interested um, to hear more about them too. <laughs> yeah. That's it, my favorite. Um, the, and the Masonic connection, similar to, like I said, the, this, the same rite that was being practiced by the Ephratans was being practiced by the Masonic brothers. And yeah. the fact that, you know, when they opened the Masonic lodge, Joseph Smith was raised to master Mason in less than three days. That's, mm. that is an unusual occurrence. However, much like Mormonism, they have handshakes, passwords, keys, and mm. all of that. So if you know all of them, you can raise through the ranks theoretically. Mm. Um, um, another little side tangent, I guess, uh, that I find interesting is that um, one of the first exposés of, of masonry was um, William Morgan uh, wrote this book in like 1820s um, and was quickly murdered for, for publishing this book. Mm -hmm. um, there have been implications that because it happened right outside of Manchester that the Smiths were involved in this. Mm. Um, it is certainly curious that um, Morgan's widow later yeah. become one, became one of Joseph's polygamous wives. Yeah. So you have you have all these very <laughs> circumstantial uh, um, things that don't mean anything in themselves, but when you add all of them up together, it's it's pretty striking. Is is there a psychedelic component to that as well with the the, the Freemasonry and the Morgan? Mm-hmm. Or not uh, Morgan specifically uh, does not mention drugs outwardly, but there is uh, what they call the master elixir. Mm. Um, and in certain initiatory ceremonies, you're given the master elixir. They don't have like a recipe for it and he doesn't tell you what it is, 
but the fact that you drink a master, master elixir and again you have a vision afterwards uh, is mm. highly suspect there's been some books written on this uh as well like pd newman's book alchemically stoned mm. um and angels in vermilion are really good books that kind of highlight that chain of custody yeah when when i when i try to understand why my ancestors joined the Mormon church the way that they did, like, what was it that really excited them about it? It, it seems to me that, that they felt that they were able to directly commune with God. And that was something that Joseph Smith was saying, you know, like the, the book of Mormon tells you that uh, God is, isn't dead that there's still communication with people. And then of course you, you take that a step further and uh, I'm a prophet, seer, and revelator, Joseph Smith says, and, and God communicates through me. And you can, each one of you can have your direct uh, inspiration, your direct experience with God, and then to be able to provide a, an experience like that through a spiked entheogenic sacrament. It just, it just makes a lot of sense to me. Um, what, what are some of the other things that you've seen? Um, that have convinced you that that's the way that it happened? Um, the, a lot of the dedication ceremonies, there's a few. So the school of the prophets, I mentioned that a few times. Yeah. It's a, there's a lot of good. Um, I, I try to use firsthand accounts whenever possible. So a lot of the times when I'm, I'm presenting like, here's this weird thing that happened. I'll just give you a page and a half of somebody else's account because it's yeah. better, you know, for them to, to present that. But there's, there's scenes where like the school of the prophets are hanging out by themselves. They take us, or Joseph passes out the sacrament and within an hour, people's eyes are dilated. Someone's doing backflips off of a bench. Like someone's rolling around on the ground. They're all saying they see God. Someone freaks out and says the devil's attacking him. Hiram looks at Joseph and grabs him and he's like, should we stop this? And Joseph's like, no, let it go. No, 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 no. this is getting good. And then like, and he, he, he's able to induce that, that kind of, uh, that kind of Pentecostal outpouring on cue whenever he seems to want to. Um, And he does so regularly with the school of prophets like that. Um, And he kind of has this weird, (laughs) this weird attitude about it where sometimes people are like, this isn't okay, Joseph, maybe we should stop this. And he's like, no, it's getting good. Just, just let it go. So do do you see any, um, remnants of this practice continuing past Nauvoo? Uh, yes. So I, I think this largely died out with Joseph. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the schism that took place, we do see some evidence that like the, the, the folks running around on Beaver Island, was it? Um, is that James Strang? Strang. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's some evidence that Strang was using a lot of Joseph's old techniques and Mm -hmm. was probably uh, using laced sacraments and people outright accuse him of such actually. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I think Brigham had a better way of dealing with that because there seemed to be, um, and again, Michael Quinn talks about this, but doesn't quite hit hard enough on it. Mm -hmm. Um, in the early days of Utah, there seemed to be this kind of Mormon speakeasy where the all-seeing eye was used as a, a way of marking certain buildings that, that could sell illicit materials. Um, and if you knew the right passwords and you knew where to look and you knew the building, then you could buy illicit materials. Um, but he doesn't speculate about like what they were buying. Um, mm. And it, I think it's quite likely that the, the Brigham allowed that kind of thing to continue quietly so long as it happened quietly and in mm. your own personal revelation. Uh, but I think he was the one that largely edited all of that out of, mm-hmm. of major church ceremonies. Um, I don't think the reorganized church uh, knew much about it or continued its practices. However, uh, Fred M. Smith, uh, do you know about his relationship with peyote? No. Um, I, I don't know who Fred M. Smith is. Okay. So Fred, Fred M. Smith is the paternal grandson of Joseph Smith. Okay. Um, Joseph Smith, or Joseph Smith, the third, uh, that's his son. So he, in the early 20th century was one of the first, um, uh, psychologists. He, 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 uh, was one of the first, like a 10 or degreed psychologists. Um, and had he not had to 
take over the the Mormon church, he probably would have continued on his career. And his his uh, the thing he was most interested in as a psychologist were um, altered states of consciousness, specifically drug induced ones. And he he wrote an entire book called The Higher Powers of Man about um, altered states of consciousness. And he has a, an entire chapter devoted to peyote. Um, I I think this is kind of the tragedy of it. I don't think he knew about his grandfather's relationship with drugs or the Mormon's history with it because it had been edited out by the time he was born. Um, because the way he writes about it is very innocent and he seems to be pretty like honest about how he discovered drugs on his own. Um, but he doesn't seem to know any of this history. He's writing about it from a very interesting perspective as one of the first psychologists and as a man of faith and like the guy who runs, he's, he is the president of the, the reorganized church. Mm. Um, but he, he seems to be kind of in the dark in terms of uh, how that related to the early Mormons. Mm. Um, he was kind of ignored. A lot of the people thought it was like a weird, uh, you know, he's a very eccentric. Yeah. Uh, and they let him write about it, but it never really picked up in any um, in any way in, in, in that organization. Yeah. So is your book published and available to purchase now? It is. So the ebook is out right now. The print copy is coming out on Friday, the 8th, October 8th. Um, okay. mm -hmm. And you'll be able to find it everywhere. You can get it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, all the, all those. What places. kind of a reaction have you had so far? <laughs> um, I, a lot of, a lot of negative reactions mm. and then a lot of very positive, like, Hey, I grew up Mormon. I'm kind of like you. I thought about this for a long time. I'm uh, glad somebody's putting this together. Um, juxtaposed with like death threats. <laughs> but, <laughs> really? You've had death threats? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some people that really don't like the way I talk about Justice Smith. <laughs> oh, jeez. Have, have you been on Mormons on Mushrooms and talked with them about this? Uh, no, we, we, it was funny. We, I started my, I started a podcast, Mormons and Drugs, where I, mm. I kind of just highlight, I run through my book. It was kind of a way of scripting out my book so I could finish it. Yeah. Um, and they started up right about the same time we did. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just kind of, we, I didn't really get uh, uh, past about half of half of my story. Uh, okay. I haven't touched it for over a year. So I just, I just checked in with them. I sent them an email, but I haven't, I haven't talked to them. I'll let them, I'll let them know to talk with you. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they'll, they'll have a really fascinating conversation with you. So it's available by the time this published, I don't, I, I might publish it before uh, your book comes out. How, how can people get a hold of it? You said Amazon. Do you have a website yourself? Yeah. Uh, Mormonsanddrugs.com. Okay. Uh, you can you can get a hold of me at mormonsanddrugs at gmail dot com. Okay. Pretty easy to just shoot me an email if you want to talk. Yeah. Um, and then, and, yeah, and is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover today? I know it's been kind of quick trying to squeeze this in. But, oh, it's fine. No, yeah. I, I I just wanted to to chit chat for a bit. I've I've been a, a, a <laughs> shameless uh, user of your your media material for too long. I just wanted to say hi and talk and. Here's my book. Hope you like it. I love. Uh, I love it. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, if if I had more time, I'd and and maybe we could do this another time, Cody, to talk about like what some of your spiritual experiences, if I could use that, or like divine the your own experiences with psychedelics that would make you see how it could open up it could make somebody really feel like they're connecting with God or connecting with nature, connecting with the universe, whatever it is, a higher consciousness an altered consciousness, a different consciousness. You know, everybody has such different experiences with this, but if you haven't had the experience yourself and you, you know, and I know, I know people who have had that experience. They're like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have that experience. It was just fun. We just laughed a lot, but I didn't feel like there was anything spiritual about it. But um, I guess um, if, if we ever get a chance to talk again, maybe we could, kind of nail down the uh the variables on the on the how to um i think a lot of the times when people get into this experience it's a lack of education that mm -hmm. leads them into troublesome areas and what would be categorized as like a bad trip 
is more just like a difficult experience. And there are ways through that and there are ways of circumventing that. Um, I guess if people are interested in this kind of experience, uh, there is a whole, there's a whole science to how you get someone to experience this uh, reliably and in a positive way instead of uh, in a traumatic way, let's say. Does that diminish the experience at all to you? If, if you're able to go, oh, well, the reason I experienced what I experienced is because I followed this checklist and it's, it's just a drug and I'm manipulating my own imagination, uh, you know, like I'm manipulating the environment around me. And so I've had this very controlled, manipulated experience and it isn't natural in that sense. Do, do you, do you have any thought, thoughts on that? Cody? Uh, I, I kind of push back against that in terms of a hundred years ago, a heart transplant was either science fiction or necromancy. Yeah. Um, right. But just because we can do it regularly today doesn't mean it's any less miraculous. You're literally taking a dead person's organs, putting them into another dead person and bringing that person back to life. Yeah. That is a fucking miracle. No yeah. matter how you look at that. Yeah. Just because it's demonstrably like just because we can explain it away and just because we can mechanistically explain how it works does not mean that's any less miraculous, yeah. you know, um, and that's that's my perspective on this. Yeah. But when you're talking about like, I saw God, <laughs> like how many people like come out of this? They're like, I saw God. I see God right now. I see, you know, and people are like, oh, come on. Well, and that and that again kind of goes into the you you kind of have to take these experiences with a grain of salt. You kind of have to prep for them. And you also have to, um, another part of the, the science of this is like the, um, the aftercare. It, it, it's not even, the, the experience itself is not, in my opinion, the most important part. I, I would argue that aftercare and the, a supportive community around you are just like even a person you can talk to about your experience. Mm. is in many ways as helpful or even more so than the experience itself mm-hmm. um so there's a again there's a lot of there's a lot of variables for like pre-trip trip post-trip that all kind of like synergize with each other yeah last question <laughs> the tricky one <laughs> what what has been the most meaningful insight that has come to you as a result of your experience with entheogens um <laughs> that i am both insignificant in the, in terms of the the universe and simultaneously i i am the one experiencing this i am in many ways the most important person in the, in this in my equation mm-hmm. um so kind of having that uh, getting to see that spectrum uh, in perspective for the first time, I think was was probably the most uh, <laughs> the most uh, meaningful to me. I'm very yeah. jealous of your <laughs> this, this <laughs> what you're dog. Right now. This dog is so like been patient with me all day. All she <laughs> wants to do is go outside and play in the pool with balls but she's just waiting on me hand and foot until I'm ready to go out and do that with her. Um, Tell me. Oh, this is what I was going to ask you. Are you familiar with uh, the book I wrote in the podcast I did bathing with God? No, I'm not. Okay. Bathing with God? Bathing. Bathing with God. Bathing with God. Yeah. I mean, it's just this, this idea that, 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 that God quote unquote is this, quantum energy that we're all made out of and this intelligent flow that we're all, you know, we might as well be sitting in a pool of God, um, you know, that it's, we're, we're bathing <laughs> in it, but I, but I, um, it, it's kind of like, a kind of like a channeled book in some ways, but playfully channeled where there's this character called quad. That's the quantum God. And he used this term significantly insignificant to describe yes. Each, each one of us and our perspective on the universe. And so that's what you were just describing. You ha- it, it, at least from my perspective, it reminded me of the significantly insignificant, you know, like, okay, I'm a speck in the, the universe, but I'm a speck through which the universe is perceiving everything that I'm perceiving, you know, it's like through my own neural pathways and genetics and all of the layers of every experience, every person that I've ever met that like things like that, that I, 
ponder when I'm having an experience like this that I wouldn't think of in any other way, in any other context. And the way that I think about it, like, I just can't even describe how you kind of like feel it happening around you and, and within you and everywhere. And it's just like, that's one of my favorite things about having had these experiences. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, like went through these rituals in the temple and say, okay, now we're going to go through the veil and enter the celestial room. And that's nothing compared to actually being in one of these altered states when it is a, you know, I've had the experiences with, with ayahuasca and a shaman where it's like, this is going to be a religious experience Mm -hmm. um, where we're doing some deep inner work and spiritual, whatever that means to anybody in this group and have been some of the just most profound uh, direct experiences with the numinous that I've ever had. So and how does that, fan. how does that, do you feel affect your perspective on the very Mormon um, obsession with obtaining godhood? So this whole idea that you too can become a God and the idea that Joseph Smith was trying to instill that in other people, how do you, how do you, uh, how mm-hmm. do you personally shore those two things? Well, or do you feel I, like they I, relate to each other? If, if we go back to that image of bathing in God, is that all every single thing is the expression of the divine, intelligent, energy, omnipotent, omniscient, whatever. It's not a, a dude in the sky that's directing things. Mm-hmm. It's just nature. It's, it's the way that atheists view uh, existence, except I think that atheists don't... Um, tend to look at nature as being intelligent because intelligence implies intention. Um, and they're like, oh, you can't, you, and, and then you can have somebody step in that goes, well, God is telling me that this is what he wants for you. It's like, okay, stop, <laughs> stop right there. <laughs> but if you're just saying like God has broke itself into an infinite number of little energetic pieces and some of them dance together in the form of a human being named Glenn and some of them dance together in the form of this dog Jesse right here and some of them dance together in the form of this Pepsi can and a phone you know like all of this stuff that it it so if if you have um someone like Joseph Smith who maybe was pondering the nature of existence and coming to this kind of realization oh we already are all god these people mm-hmm. don't know this these people think that that when you die, you go to heaven and you're like an angel floating on a cloud. But like, I feel the, the divine intelligence that underlies all of existence. And I want to communicate that to people. And I'm going to express it in this form that we're, we're children of God, we're God's in embryo, that the purpose of existence, that my work and my glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And, you know, ha- having these kinds of things, but it goes in the the, the symbols and the forms of Christianity, um, Protestant Christianity specifically. And then people always confuse the symbol for what mm-hmm. the symbol is being represented. So that, that's a very short way, maybe concise, maybe confusing. I don't know, convoluted way of no, answering I agree with that you question completely. for you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'll have but, to check um, out your book. That's a, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, why don't you do this, Cody? You go check out my book. <laughs> you can listen. You can listen to it. I mean, look up "Bathing with God." You don't have to go and buy it on Amazon, but you can you can listen to it on. And uh, yeah, let's have a conversation again. You can ask me more questions about like what did you mean when you said this? Because that's stupid. Yeah. (laughs) No, I love it. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Cody, and for for being patient with me while I got COVID and then came back (laughs) having COVID. I feel much better. You know, it's the year for it. Yeah. Cool. Well, nice to meet you. Good luck with your book. Thank you. uh, Yeah. I hope to talk with you again. Nice to nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me, and hope to hear from you again. Okay. Take care, Cody. See you. Down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Hey there, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Now, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have more to say about this topic, and I'm going to do that with a follow up behind the scenes sharing time episode on Patreon. So, if you're in a position where you can throw me a few dollars each month to support the work that I put into creating this podcast, 
please come and support me on Patreon, where you'll also get access to additional content. Did you know that I also create sharing time episodes that are available only to Patreon subscribers? I've been doing that for a few years, so there's a lot of content there that you can have access to. So please come and support this podcast if you can. I greatly appreciate it. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts float past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this night.